Welcome to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, we've been in Denver for 15 years. My wife graduated from the University of North Texas with a degree in photography. Anybody? Fine arts majors in here? All right, so all logical people. <laughs> Uh, so she graduated from here. I met her here uh, in the college ministry at Den Bible Church. I was the director at Den Bible Church for the college ministry there for several years before leaving Texas for the glorious land of Washington, D.C., uh, before receiving an invite from Christ Community Church. Um, anybody connected to C3 here? Mm-hmm. Okay, there's one back there. Um, to see, hey, would you be willing to plant a church on the north side of town? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> But like all people who have left Denton, eventually you end up making your way right back because it's a giant black hole that you can never escape. So if you think you're leaving, think again. You will be here forever. Um, and so here we are, we're back. We wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Uh, and excited to be here. Stephanie, is there anything that, that they need to know before we jump in and get started? No, you can just bring us started. It's just a question and answer. Yeah. If you have some questions about outreach and things you guys have been having, on outreach, you can ask them anything. So I have five questions here that have already been started. But before we start, what I want to do is I just, I just want to lay a little groundwork and just kind of make sure that we're all kind of, you know, operating on the same vocabulary and, and kind of same basic frameworks. Um, first of all, uh, when we're talking about evangelism, we just want to make sure that we all understand what evangelism isn't. Okay, what evangelism isn't. First of all, evangelism is not... What evangelism is, first of all, is imposition. Okay? Many of you guys have done evangelism around campus or with your families, and it's this notion that what's good for you is good for you, what's good for me is good for me. Don't impose your values on me. But evangelism is not imposition. Because what you're not ultimately doing is forcing your values on anybody. You are delivering a message that's been given to you by an outside party. Okay? So you're not imposing anything from yourself on anybody else, but you are a messenger declaring news. It's fundamentally not an, an imposition on anybody. Secondly, evangelism is not your personal testimony. Okay, Personal testimonies are wonderful. They're glorious examples of God's regenerating grace in your life, redeeming you, saving you, making you more like Christ. But at the end of the day, your personal testimony is not the gospel. In fact, oftentimes when we get that confused and we end up sharing our personal testimony with people as opposed to the gospel, what gets communicated is that really Christianity is just what works for us, okay, as opposed to something that's outside of us. Thirdly, what evangelism is not, thirdly, is not social justice. Amen. Okay? That does not mean that social justice isn't a wonderful thing to do. All Christians are committed to doing good in the world. What's social justice? Right? So when I say social justice, I mean the uh, promotion of good and virtue and beauty in the world and the restraint of evil. Does that make sense? Okay, so for instance, some of you might be passionate about sex trafficking. You might be passionate about, um, you know, you might be about equal wages. You might be passionate about uh, the immigration issue that's going on all throughout Europe. Uh, so you guys might be well-informed and passionate about any one of those things. I think Christians should be as much or more than anybody. But at the end of the day, all of those things 
right? Pursuing um, the good of other people, the physical, uh, societal good of other people, uh, is not ultimately evangelism. And the reason it's not is because we believe that there is something worse than death and something better than human flourishing. And that's what we preach in the gospel. That's evangelism. Okay, so it's not social justice. It's not, um, it's not to be tied up in our political activity uh, or anything of the like. Lastly, or fourthly, it is not apologetics. I don't even know how to spell that. <laughs> Amazing. Just a few years when you have spell check for everything you do on your devices. You don't know how to spell or write anymore. Okay? It's not apologetics. Apologetics is helpful. One of my college professors said it this way. Apologetics is... Uh, kind of like for the non-Christian, a greasy taco, and for the Christian, it's an acid. For the non-Christian, it's meant to just make them uneasy in their presuppositions, whereas for the Christian, it's to ease them in their presuppositions, that you are rationally justified in believing what you, what you believe. And then for the non-Christian, perhaps trying to make them uneasy, that maybe you're not as rationally justified in your unbelief as you thought you were. But at the end of the day, none of that is evangelism. It's pre-evangelism, it's priming the pump, um, it all relates to evangelism, but at the end of the day, it's not evangelism. And lastly, evangelism is not the results of evangelism. That's what I mean by that. Too often, we make the mistake of thinking that evangelism is all of the conversions that we can count. Okay, That is God's gracious work through the power of the gospel, and he does that by his, by his own sovereign grace according to his own will, in his own timing, for his own glory. All right? But that is not fundamentally what evangelism is. And when we end up getting consumed with results, thinking that the results, the numbers, at the end of the day, how many conversions we have is what evangelism is, then it's not going to be long before you begin to abandon the evangel for all kinds of techniques, for all kinds of manipulations, in order to boost those numbers. And so, for, I'll, t I'll be honest with you, there were a number, again, in the years of doing college ministry on and around campus, and this may be some of your testimonies, the number of students that I would talk to that grew up in and around the church that had, you know, uh, gone to a summer camp, had an emotional experience, threw a stick in the fire, prayed a prayer, and thought they were saved, you know, when really it was kind of like that summer camp was, we're going to get them no sleep, we're going to totally exhaust them on the last night, we're going to drop this massive gospel bomb, and every 13-year-old in the room is going, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but really it's because they had two hours of sleep in five days, right? And there's no lasting fruit of repentance after that. They come here and that, that prayer is just one thing that they did back in the day. Jesus is in their back pocket. They've got their hell insurance and that's good enough. I think when we end up uh, trusting or defining evangelism by our results, we can become too caught up in what is it that's going to work. It's pragmatism, Okay. So here's the deal. Pragmatism always assumes that, it, that if it works, it must be true, and that's a lie. Okay? We preach the gospel because it's true, and because it's true, it works. Okay? But it works according to God's timing and God's wisdom. Um, so these are the five things that evangelism isn't. So I just want to be really clear on that as we enter kind of in a Q&A uh, so that we're all operating on, on the same page. Secondly, what is evangelism then? So we're talking about evangelism. I'm just going to use one simple definition so you know what I mean. So every time I say evangelism, this is what I mean. Just make sure that you're on the same page with me. Get a different marker here. That it is... Is there a blue one works better? The blue one works best? All right. The teaching of 
the gospel with the aim to persuade. If you were to do an amplified version, it might look something like this. The teaching, proclaiming, preaching, declaring of the good news of what God has done in Christ for sinners with the aim, the goal, uh, to ultimately see them repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, this conversion is always the goal. Uh, now, I want to be really careful here because we want to speak persuasively, but at the end of the day, our goal uh, it's not our responsibility to convert. Let's just make sure that we're really clear on that. Um, so let me wrap it up with this. You have your Bibles with you? Go ahead and open up. Okay. Um, it's the teaching of the gospel with the aim to persuade. Okay. So what exactly does evangelism look like? You have your Bibles. Go to Ezekiel 36. Just real quick. All right, so we've got a problem, right? God's name is being profaned. Israel is doing it. The ones who should have known better aren't acting as if they've known better. And their problem is really the same problem that everybody's had ever since Genesis 3, and that they've chosen to find their happiness in things other than God. The law was unable to save them. There's no way that they could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and act and conduct themselves in such a way that would be pleasing to God. All the law did was continue to reveal their inability to obey the law. And so they are completely lost. That's why in Ezekiel 36, God says this, beginning in 24, I will take you from the nations, and I will gather from all the countries and bring you into your own land. 25, and I will sprinkle clean water on you. He's saying, I'm going to cleanse you. I will clean you from all your uncleanness and from all of your idols, all those things in which you seek your happiness apart from me. I'm going to cleanse you from that, from the way that you've profaned my name, from the way that you've told the nations that I'm not worthy of, of, of being obeyed, of being trusted, um, I'm going to cleanse you from all of that sin. But not only that, verse 26, I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit, I'm going to put within you. I'm going to take this heart of stone, this dead heart, this unresponsive heart, this heart with no life, and instead, I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. It's going to be living and responsive and tender. And the way that I'm going to do it, verse 27, is I'm going to put my spirit within you. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so what we see here is just a beautiful picture of conversion. Sixteen times in this chapter, in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will. 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 I'm going to do for you that which you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to do for you that which you would not do for yourself, even if you could do it because of sin. Right? That's why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we are by nature children of wrath. By the time you get to Ephesians 4, you find out that our hearts are so hardened, that are so dead, that we couldn't respond to the gospel even if we wanted to. And so we're dead. We have hearts of stone. So God has to give us hearts of flesh. How's he going to do it? First of all, it's going to come through the power of the Spirit. That's what you see in Ezekiel, or in uh, verse 27. But then when you go one chapter over to verse 37, you find out that what is the instrument that the Spirit's going to do to end up bringing spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead? Okay, verse 37, Valley of the Dry Bones. Some of you guys might be familiar with it. Hand of the Lord, verse 1, was upon me, brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. So it was just death valley. And he led me around among them, and behold, there was very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. There was no life to them whatsoever. He said, Son of man, can these bones live? 
I said, oh God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones. I want you to preach to them. How is it that these dead things are going to come to life? It's going to be because you're going to preach. But you're not going to preach just anything uh, that you want to preach. You're not going to preach what you think is going to be best in their interest. You're not going to preach what seems most reasonable to you. I'm going to tell you what to say. And so he says here, prophesy over these bones and say to them this. O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the word of the, the word Lord, excuse me, thus says the Lord God of those bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So that was the instructions. So look at what Ezekiel does. Verse 7, he turns around and he does exactly what God says. So I prophesied. As I was commanded, and I prophes- as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were new sinews on them. Flesh had come on them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breathe, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied. And he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. I think that is a glorious picture of the church. Sinners, dead, dry, unresponsive, has the word of God preached to them. Life comes from what was once death, and they're raised up as a mighty army for the glory of God. Right? So you see what's happening here in Ezekiel 36 and 37? God says, I'm going to bring spiritual life and there's spiritual death. I'm going to do it. And I'm going to do it through the power of my spirit. And my spirit is going to use my word through the preaching of my servant to impart that life. So I'm going to use you, Ezekiel. At the end of the day, it's not going to be your persuasiveness. It's not going to be your intellect. It's not going to be, you know, your extroversion. It's not going to be any of those things. At the end of the day, it's going to be you faithfully speaking what I've asked you to speak. That's exactly what we find in Romans 10, isn't it, with Paul? Right? That hearing, or faith, comes by hearing in hearing by what? The word. By the word of Christ. Not your word. Not my word. Not apologetics. Not your personal testimony. By the word of Christ. You prophesy over those bones. You preach to them. And then you wait. I think that's the way that it is with our friends, with our family, with our lost friends and neighbors. People that sit next to you in class. And what God is calling you to do in evangelism is not to be too clever what God is calling you to do is to faithfully, in the power of the Spirit, speak His words. And as you do, what you're going to find is by the power of God, something utterly miraculous happening. Bones are going to begin to rattle. Life is going to begin to appear where there was once death. That you're going to end up seeing an, an army raised. And so Ezekiel 36, when you look around in this room, what you see is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made in Ezekiel 36. That is amazing. And it's not because man was so clever to bring it about. It's because God said, I will, I will, I will, I will. But how do we know? How do we know that God's word will do that? What is it that's so amazing about God's word that it can do this kind of work in the heart of dead sinners? Go to Isaiah 55. Go back to your left just a little bit. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 10. 
Or does the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout? So he's using a natural analogy. Rain falls, snow falls, nourishes, brings life where there was once death. Okay? Giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In the same way, so shall my word be that which goes out of my mouth. This is God speaking. And it will not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So at the end of the day, what is it that makes us successful in evangelism? It's not all your apologetical genius. It's not how extroverted you are. It's not what, how good a friend you are. Right? It's not how whimsical you are. It's not how, even how courageous and brave you are. At the end of the day, what makes you successful in evangelism, what makes me successful in evangelism, is faithfulness to speak God's word as it goes out. And it, it, it will accomplish everything that God intends. It accomplishes it. We see that in our own lives. Last spot, go to 1 Peter chapter 1. How do we see that working out in our own lives? All the way to the end of your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1. So we see in verse 22 that our souls have been purified, our obedience to the truth, what truth? The gospel. In a sincere brotherly love, he's commanding us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart, which is the fruit of the gospel being born in our lives. Because, verse 23, look at this, you have been born again. You who once had a heart of stone now have a heart of flesh. You who were once dead, dry bones are now living, a living army of grace. And you were birthed not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And then look at what he, who he quotes. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, the word of the Lord remains forever. Not the text we looked at, but also in Isaiah. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what is evangelism? Evangelism is the teaching of the gospel. It's the speaking of of God's words, God's news to sinners. That's it. It's speaking God's word to sinners that he might, in the power of his spirit, take them from death to life. And so if you want to know how to do evangelism well, ultimately, at the end of the day, you need to study and know the gospel well. Speak God's words. Read God's words. Okay? few things that this does for us. Number one is that it eliminates false guilt. How many times earlier when I was a Christian, I fumbled through a gospel presentation with a non-Christian friend. And I thought, man, if I only just knew the answer to that, or if I just hadn't fumbled over that statement, or if I just said this a little bit differently, or a little bit more intelligently, then maybe they would have been saved. Right? I don't know if anybody you've ever felt that way. But all of that, underlying all of that, was really just my own pride. Assuming that it was up to me to save anybody. Right? So it releases us of false guilt. Right? It releases us from the notion that you're responsible to do something that you're really not responsible to do. That's freeing. On the other side of that, what it does is it emboldens our evangelism. That now that you know that you have a, a power working behind you through the Word of God, and that it's not up to you to save anybody, then you're able to go up emboldened in all of your weakness, in all of your ignorance, and trust that God accomplishes all of his purposes through his word. That's what emboldens us in evangelism. Okay? 
The last thing it does is it engenders us with hope and thanksgiving. Because this is how you were saved. It was God's grace, working by God's spirit, through God's word, to bring you into God's people for God's glory. Okay? So, I just want to lose any pretense whatsoever that we have any ability in and of ourselves to argue anybody into the kingdom of God. Okay? That can only happen if they are born I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that is a work of God, his grace, through his word. Romans 9, God chooses. Romans 10, you preach. Right? Those don't contradict one another. Romans 9 and Romans 10 are best of friends, like peanut butter and jelly. All right? Um, God has not only ordained the ends, and he will bring about everything that he's ordained, but he's also ordained the means, and he's allowed you to be a part of it. That's amazing. That's evangelism. Okay? Any questions about anything we just touched before we go to the other questions that you guys had? Thoughts, comments, questions? Oh, man. Okay. Agreement? Good. All right. Well, I've got five questions in front of me. Um, if you guys have any more questions that come up as we go, feel free to just jump in and ask. Um, Try to answer these very best that I can. I, I mean, BSN peeps, I'm sure back there, you guys and staff, you can chime in if anything helpful. That'd be helpful to people. Joe, who's a member of our church, works here on Unity. Um, love for you to chime in if you have any thoughts. Okay, first question. One thing I've encountered is a lot of people saying that's great if it works for you. So many people have this attitude that you can just find whatever religion or belief works for you, and they'll find what works for them, and they're okay with that. I never know how to respond at all, and, and how to tell them that the gospel is for everyone, and that there's only one way and one truth. So I'm just wondering, what's the best way to approach conversations like that? Um, first of all, let me, just, let me just add a qualifier. A lot of the thick apologetic books that you might be tempted to to buy in order to know how to best persuade people for the sake of the gospel really aren't that helpful. Here's what I said. They're helpful for all the reasons I said earlier, greasy taco and acid. Right? At the end of the day, most of the people walking around campus don't have any great philosophical reasons for why they believe what they believe. They just inherited it. Like hair color. Right? Some people have. Some people have begun to think through those things. But most people, when they respond like this, well, that's great if it works for you. It's just kind of a natural, innate response, not because they have any kind of well-thought reason for it. So if somebody responds to you and go, well, in your mind, you go, well, it sounds to me like they're just, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, they're just steeped in relativism. And then you begin to go into kind of what relativism is, and you break it all down, and, you know, and they're just kind of going, yeah, I don't really know what you're talking about. I just want to have the qualifier to say that I don't know that that's that helpful with these. I think all that's true about this person. He just doesn't know why he thinks the way he thinks. So most people, when they say something like this, just assume what most Americans assume. That religion is something that doesn't belong in the public square. It's something that belongs in your own private personal life. You use it in your own home, in your own room, for the purpose of your own self-actualization and your own self-fulfillment to be happy. Right? Um, so that you can use it for your best life now. It's a tool to be used. 
Right? At the end of the day, it's not a truth that is universally applied to everybody. Um, so the question I would pose to you is, are you a Christian because it works for you? Or is there another reason that you're a Christian? Are you a Christian because Christianity just works for you? Or are you a Christian for another reason? I would submit that you guys are Christians not because it works for you. Not in the way that they're making it out to be. Christianity is calling you to die. Christianity is calling you to go and sell everything that you have and follow Jesus. Christianity means that Jesus has the right to pick you up out of Denton, to send you to Papua New Guinea, so that you can go get a spear in your chest for the glory of God. So, with all respect to Joel Osteen, the promise of Christianity is not your best life now. The call of Christianity is you need to come and die. The reason that you and I believe the Christian message is not because it works for us. For all the other kind of things that seem to incentivize our culture, Christianity is the exact opposite of that. The reason that we believe Christianity is because it's true, not because it works. Right? We believe it because it's true. So I would say at that point, just like any other point, I want to run as fast as I can to the resurrection. If I can get to the resurrection, I can get to any other question that anybody has. That if you want to study apologetics, you need to major in the resurrection. Okay, before you get into biblical manuscripts, before you get into the problem of evil, before you get into everything else, you need to be firm on the resurrection. Because if you can provide a plausible argument for the resurrection, and they're willing to agree that, yeah, it's plausible that Christ did bodily raise from the dead, then every other miraculous claim that the Bible makes has to also be taken as plausible, including the Bible itself. Right? And so the reason that we think that this is the Word of God is not because it's just one book. We look at it and we go, these are diverse manuscripts written by countless men over multiple continents, over two, three millennia. And so the whole reason that we put it all in one together, the whole reason we canonize this one book, so to speak, is because we believe this is a miracle that God would do such a thing through His Spirit. So if the resurrection is plausible, then this is plausible. The gospel is plausible. Right? The earth stopping and the sun standing in the middle of the sky is plausible. Right? That there being such a person as God who's created everything, including us in his image, is plausible. Right? Everything is plausible. And so I want to race to the resurrection. Because if Christ bodily rose from the dead, then it's not just true for me, it's true for everybody. Okay? And so I would say, the way that I would respond, and then Stephanie or Joe or anybody else, if you want to, if you want to add to it, is say, Friend, I understand what you're saying, but I'm not a Christian because it works for me. In fact, for all intents and purposes, Christianity works contrary to my best life now because it's calling me to die. The reason I'm a Christian is because I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was not only murdered on a cross, but that he bodily rose from the grave, and that there's credible eyewitness testimony to that fact, that it is true. That's why I'm a Christian. And if that's the case, then it's not just true for me, but it's true for you too. So I want to go there as quickly as I can. I want to get out of the muck and the mire of personal pragmatism. Because that's not what Christianity is. right? It's not just a crutch that I'm leaning on because I think Christianity makes me happy. 
right? It's because I think it's true, even, to the con even contrary to my own desires. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Any follow-up questions that's not clear about that or anything you guys want to add? Yeah, I think, I think Paul speaks to that in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, he pins the whole crux of the faith is pinned to the resurrection. Mm -hmm. and, and so if, if you're talking with anyone and, and, and you don't know exactly where to lead them, if, if at the very least you can get them to focus in on Christ and what he's done, Tell them if you want to start your argument, start it with him right there. That well, I, I don't know no better place where you can leave a person. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I think you're right. Any other thoughts or comments or follow-up questions on that that would be helpful? Listen, you can preach the cross all day long, but if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then he was just an unfortunate martyr that couldn't run fast enough. But if he did raise from the dead, if, he, if that grave truly was empty, then you can take it, you can be rationally justified in believing that everything else the Bible has to say is true. The Bible is true. And that truth is something not subjective, but objective. An historical, objective fact that is true for all people in all places at all times. So, I'd want to major in the resurrection. Okay? We go with that? Mm -hmm. All right. Number two. How should we stay intentional in sharing the gospel? Not just bringing up God here and there inside friendships. Uh, inside friendships we've had for a long time that just seem to be getting weaker. I feel like my focus has been more on keeping the friendship alive than the gospel. A uh, couple things. Number one. Um, just recognize that in God's kind providence, he brings relationships in and out of your life and will for the rest of your life. Okay, So I don't want you to feel any kind of great burden or obligation that you're disobeying God or the gospel if a friend ends up leaving your life and moving on. Okay, God will bring people in and out of your life just like God will bring you in and out of other people's lives. And he does that in his kind providence. Okay, um, So I, I wouldn't want to put too much weight on trying to hold on to relationships that seem to be transitioning out. Try to be a good friend when you can. Try to serve their good whenever you can. But if over time those friendships are heading in different directions, um, then just trust that God's kind providence and sovereignty and, uh, and, and bring that about. Okay, So that's the first thing I'd say. Secondly, um, I, think, I think friendship is a wonderful thing, obviously. In a sense, the entire Bible is a story of God making his friends his or his enemies as friends. Uh, so the Bible's all about friendship in that sense. And we should actively seek to cultivate friendship simply because that's what it looks like to love others just as we love ourselves. Right? That's, a, that's at the heart of friendship. Um, but as we talked about earlier, what I don't want to do is presume at any point that the quality of my friendship to that person has any bearing whatsoever on the effectiveness of evangelism. Okay? Uh, so some of you have heard when I was in Young Life years ago, and I love Young Life. I owe much to my time in Young Life years and years and years ago. But we always had heard, and I understand the motive behind it, that you have to earn the right to be heard. Earn the right to be heard. And to a certain degree that's true because you want to have a good reputation with outsiders. right? You don't want to be known as somebody that's a slanderer and lazy and, you know, and, and any of these kind of things and then try to preach the gospel. right? You want to have a life that's consistent with the gospel that you preach. 
However, when it comes to the effectiveness of evangelism, of the gospel working, the quality of your friendship has nothing to do with it. has zero to do with it. It has no efficacy, effectiveness, whatsoever. You do not have to earn the right to be heard. Jesus has already earned that right. Okay? And you're speaking on his behalf. Right? So the gospel isn't something that comes from you. It's not something that you're speaking on your own behalf. But you're coming as somebody who's weak and frail and sinful and needs Jesus. And you're speaking a message outside of you for somebody that's outside of you on account of a righteousness that came from outside of you that could be applied to somebody else. Right? And your friendship, your ability to be a good friend, to maintain that friendship, to earn the right to be heard, has nothing to do with how God would use the gospel to save that person. And so I think this is the great folly of friendship evangelism. On the one hand, I think that it's good and right to seek the good of other people, just as you would seek your own good, right? Fulfill the law of God when you do that. But on the other hand, um, I've known more people, including myself, who have committed a friendship evangelism without ever sharing the gospel. Because there's some kind of ambiguous standard about when, am I, when have I been a good enough friend to finally do it. And you wait weeks, and you wait months, and you wait years, and you never share the gospel, and now you're stuck in this kind of weird place where you've gone years with this person that you know has cancer, and that you have the cure, and you've never told them, by the way, you're terminal, and I have the cure. Now it becomes awkward, because essentially, the most loving thing you could have done to that person as a friend, you haven't done for months or years. Now it becomes even more difficult to share the gospel than it did. So what I would encourage you to do is I just want to put my cards on the table in the front as much as I can. My neighbor Ray moves in, right? Within the first week, I've shared the gospel with him, and he thinks I'm, you know, probably thinks I'm some kind of religious fanatic, right? And I could have thought, I just need to have him in, and we're going to have dinner, and I'm going to try to be his friend, and eventually he's going to be comfortable enough with me where I can share the gospel in a way that he's not going to get offended, and he's not going to get upset, and he's not, right? What I wanted to do was... I'm going to share the gospel with him. He knows where I stand. And I'm going to spend the rest of my time as a neighbor trying to live out of that gospel to love him, to serve him, to encourage him, to validate the gospel that I've already shared with him. Because I know from my own experience that if I try to wait until I think I'm a good enough friend, I'll probably never share the gospel. And I imagine that with many of you, you've had the same experience. Okay? So, those are just my thoughts on, on friendship evangelism. What if you have, like, a special case, like, where you were friends with a person for, like, years and years, like, say before you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior? And so it's a very personal friend, almost like family. Yeah. How do you share the gospel with them? Same way you share the gospel with anybody else. If anybody else, like, um, I know, like, in my case, like, if they're more closed off to hearing it mm -hmm. and stuff and how you handle in those kind of difficult situations. Yeah. So imagine... So being a pastor, my wife and I often, you know, we have conversations all the time that when we have to have difficult conversations with people, um, the natural tendency for us is to sit down and try to calculate those conversations in such a way to go, okay, how can I say it so they respond this way? And if they respond that way, then here's three other ways that I can respond to diffuse that. And, you know, and you begin to try to think through, how can I have this conversation in a way that isn't going to send shrapnel? And the reality is, is you can't. 
gospel is an awkward conversation because it assumes things about us that we don't want to believe is true about us. It assumes that we are not righteous, that as Paul says in Romans 7, there is no good in us. It assumes that we have been disobedient to the God who has created us and whom we are accountable for our entire lives. And that is a terrifying notion. And I'm telling you, there's no way to have that conversation without it being a little awkward. And so if the goal is to avoid awkwardness, you're never going to show the gospel. And so I'd say, you just put it out there, right? Just drop the bomb, let arms and legs get blown off, and then spend the rest of the time sewing them back together. Right? Um, that's what I'd say. I just don't think there's any way to enter into that conversation. Okay, yeah, I've had it before. It feels like every time. Yeah. If you've had it before, I might say, you know what? Do you remember a couple years ago that you and I had this conversation mm-hmm. about what I believe? Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you've given any more thought to that. And it's it's more difficult if they like they already say they're a Christian, mm-hmm. but and you want to like disciple them or something yeah. or talk with them about like certain things that they mm-hmm. may have told you out in life. Yeah. Unsure about that, that gets you. I I totally agree. I think that's a totally different category. So if I know somebody who says they're a Christian or thinks they're a Christian, but is living a life that is completely contrary to the truth of the, the truth of the gospel, that is completely disobedient to the Bible. So for instance, Jesus says, "If you love me, you will obey my commandments." Right? That that following Christ doesn't look like just intellectually assenting to the reality of His person or even of His resurrection, and then go back to fishing. It's I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Come follow me, and you drop your nets and you turn and you go. You're getting a whole new life. So if, you're, if your current life looks just like your old life when Jesus called you to come and follow him, you may not be a Christian. So what I want to do is open my Bible with that, with that friend and just say, I'm concerned. Because what you say you are, you may not be. Now listen, God alone knows the secrets of men. He knows whether you're saved or not. I can't say that. But the Bible's given us a pretty good litmus test as to whether or not we can be sure that we are or not. So, as far as your security, I think once saved, always saved. But whether you're saved or not, let's just examine the scriptures. Is your life bearing fruit in keeping with genuine conversion? Do you love Christ? Do you love everything that Christ stands for? You know, are you growing in that grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? And just begin to bring that to bear, because friend, if you're not, you may not be a Christian. Years ago, I had a conversation with a guy in my office who was addicted to pornography. He was introduced to it when he was 11 years old, uh, as on average most men are. Um, and he got to the point where he was uh, a senior in college. And he was wanting to go into the military. He was scared to death because of the environment that he would be stepping into. And he just confessed that he's been struggling with pornography for almost 12 years. And he'd grown to the point where he was looking at pornography every day, morning and night, when he woke up, lunchtime, nighttime, every single day, hours upon hours. He was just addicted to it. And then he had just a slew of justifications. Like, listen, I know that I shouldn't be doing that, but it's not as bad as what some people look at. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, I'm not looking at, like, freaky stuff with animals and those kind of things. And So he has all these justifications for why, yeah, it's bad, but it's just not that bad. Right? Um, and then he would say, but I mean, I know that I'm a Christian. And I just stopped him. I said, you do? How? Right? Your life has shown no ability or desire to resist this on any level. 
That's not to say that a Christian is perfect. That'd be heretical. But a Christian is perfectible. Right? And if your life is evidence, no power of the Spirit whatsoever in this area or others, then friend, I can't grant you any assurance that you are what you say you are. And he got mad, and he pushed me in the chest, and he walked out of my office. I didn't see him for four weeks. He just disappeared. And then he came back into my office about four weeks later, set up a meeting, and was just streaming with tears. He goes, I wasn't a Christian. All this time I thought I was a Christian. I wasn't a Christian. And we walked through it, began to meet with him, and, and now he's walking with the Lord. He's married. That The gospel is broken. The power of sin in his life. He's fighting it well. He went his whole life thinking that he was a Christian because he prayed a prayer in summer camp. But his life exhibited something completely different. Mm-hmm. I think we have an obligation. If someone calls him to be a Christian, but they would be unloving to me, of me, to not bring all of Christ's commandments to bear on you just as you do me. That's what it is to make disciples. Teach them all that I've commanded you. Right? Because he loves me, obeys my commandments. And if you don't love Christ, you're not a Christian. Yeah. It may seem harsh, but that's actually exceedingly loving. Because to leave somebody potentially in a state other than what they really are, thinking they're something other than what they are, oh, that would be potentially evil. So we bring God's word to bear on that. Any? No. Um, only related, we talked about church discipline just a bit before this and sort of the steps involved. Um, so when it comes, however, to evangelizing, how much is enough? Because George Mueller prayed for like 20 years straight for like three people to be converted. But on the other hand, Paul and Jesus keep moving all the time. Yeah. So I guess what's enough would be my question. With respect to church discipline? No, with evangelism. With like evangelism, when you're evangelizing how often someone. Should you be Sharing. You share the gospel as often as you can, and you leave the results to God. So you sow, God saves. Um, so an example that I think about often is that Peter had more conversions in one sermon in Acts 2 than Jesus had in all of the Gospels. And certainly we would never in a million years say that Peter's method of sharing the Gospel was better than Jesus's. We'd never pit Peter against Jesus, would we? We'd say they're preaching the same Gospel, right? Jesus is probably better in some way, right? But it's the same gospel, and for some reason, thousands get saved when Peter preaches it, and Jesus ends up with nobody at the end of his life. Why? Because there's something altogether mysterious about how the Spirit of God works in accompanying his word to save his people for his glory. Right? That's what, that's what Jesus teaches in John 3. The Spirit blows where he wishes. Right? You can't control it. You can't manipulate it. Right? You preach God's word lead the result of the Spirit. I watered, or uh, I planted Apollos water, but God caused the growth. Right? So, yeah, some people, you, they, they may hear the gospel over 20 years before they get saved. Some people might hear it right now. I preach, and, you know, you may get one or two people saved in two years. Right? Matt Chandler barely breaks wind, and 80 people get saved. Right? I mean, it's just, listen, same gospel, right? It's not because, well, Matt Chandler somehow figured out some method of preaching the gospel that all these other pastors haven't figured out. We're all planting the same seed. It's just that God in his mysterious grace causes it to bear fruit at different times in different ways, all for his glory. And so I just want to be faithful to preach. That makes sense? As often as I can. It does, but I think it hits on, I may be what I'm struggling to articulate. Yeah. Like, a pastor, you preach in a certain spot every Sunday, mm-hmm. and those come but we can make choices about where we go to evangelize mm-hmm. to and whom to. And I guess that's 
more of my question is, is there a standard? Or is there, if I've gone and evangelized to a friend and they don't want to hear it again and again, and I know I could go to another friend or go elsewhere, should I? I, I don't, how do you make those sort of decisions? That's just, that's going to require a lot of wisdom. It's a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I would say in season and out of season. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there are some relationships that you'll hang on to for months and years. There are others that are going to come in and out of your life. There are others that may go out of your life simply because of the gospel. And that's just reality. Some people with whom you share the gospel once, and that's it. Some people you'll share the gospel lots of times. I share the gospel probably 500 times with um, a little guy named Eddie that I worked with years and years and years ago. And he, he was just stiff-necked and obstinate. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. I shared over and over, and I pulled every tool out of my tool belt, and I'm hitting them from this side of the resurrection, and this side with the reliability, and this side. I mean, I just bludgeoned him with the gospel for like <laughs> four years. And he never got saved. He ends up leaving Denton, going down to the University of Texas at Arlington. Somebody invites him to the BSM at UTA. He goes to one meeting. Here's the director down there sharing the gospel. And he goes, that's right. <laughs> I just go, God. Your blood is where he wishes. You know? Um, and the only way that I knew is because I was walking across the parking lot. I didn't Bible church one day, and I hear this little scrawny voice call out to me from the other side of the parking lot. And it was him. And he ran up and he gave me the biggest hug. And he just said, I didn't realize that all those times you were sharing the gospel, I just didn't know. But I believe it now. I planted, Paulus watered, God causes the growth. In season, out of season. Sometimes once, sometimes multiple times. There's just no litmus test for it. It just requires wisdom. Yeah. I will say, I think wisdom would also suggest if somebody's rejected the gospel once or multiple times, um, I don't think that it's in your best interest to continue to just cram it down their throat. Right? We're still image bearers, made in the image of God. They have dignity, value, and worth. Um, and you love them as a neighbor. Always looking for new opportunities to share the gospel. Yeah. So one thing that I've wondered about a little bit is like in light of First John five, mm -hmm. and when he's talking about you know those who sin sin unto death, and that you shouldn't necessarily pray for that. How should you deal with evangelizing people who, at some time in the past, made a profession of faith in Christ? You know, varying levels, of course, of orthodoxy from the church they were sure. coming from but they've now apostatized and they would identify as atheists, agnostic, unbelievers or something. How do you evangelize somebody who at some point in the past made a profession of faith and yeah. has now fallen away? I would look at it the same way that I look at any other non-Christian. You know, I think that they probably have some requisite categories where pre-evangelism is a little less necessary. Um, but I want to do so with the understanding that the reason that they apostatized or left the faith, they didn't leave the faith. They were never in the faith to begin with. Right? Um, they looked like it, but they were just a shell. Uh, it's not ultimately because they have an intellectual problem or a philosophical problem. At the end of the day, the reason they reject the gospel is because they have a moral problem. Mm -hmm. And the same thing that's going to save my apostatized friend is the same thing that will save the tribesmen in New Guinea. It's the same thing that's going to save the secularist in Denmark. It's the same thing that's going to save the college student in Denton. And that's going to be the power of God through the Spirit of God working by the Word of God and the glory of God according to the time and the wisdom of God. So, so I just want to bring the gospel to bear. Pray for him. Yeah. So is there a difference in the way that we evangelize, for example, somebody 
who was raised in a church and apostatized when they got into high school, as opposed to somebody that we've known either in the context of our local church or in the context of the BSF, who we knew when they professed to be a believer and then they've fallen away radically? Great question. I think, number one, you have to recognize that, at least in this part of the country, we live in a heavily church culture, but not really a gospel culture. Right. So a lot of people own vocabulary words like grace and you know, truth and mercy and forgiveness, but they may not mean what the Bible means about things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if I sit with somebody that's positive, oh, yeah, yeah, I know all of that, and Jesus this, that, and the other, I'm saying, wait, 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 wait a minute. Just, just out of curiosity, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. So when you say grace, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. You know, when you, see, when you say saved, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Because they may mean something other than what the Bible means. Um, and so my sharing the gospel with them, even though they grew up in church, may really honestly be the first time they've heard a biblical gospel. Mm-hmm. But they were confirmed at 13, and they were baptized as a baby, and they went through catechism, and they went through all these things. But they've never heard the gospel. Mm-hmm. They just never know. Yeah. So I want to always work with verbiage. I don't want to take for granted that just because they have Christian vocabulary, that when you turn those vocab cards around, they mean the same thing as me. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Any other follow-up thoughts or questions on that? Any questions? What are some good ways to go about presenting the gospel to kids? Same way you present it to, to adults. The way use the law. All right, the law of God shows their guilt, shows their need for a savior, and lead them to the savior. Right. So uh, Paul in, in Romans three says the law exists to show us, reveal our sin. He writes in Galatians three that the law serves two purposes. Number one is a jailer to imprison us in our sin to convict us, and as a teacher to lead us, to instruct us, to guide us to Christ, where we find righteousness. And so the way that, that, that my wife and I share the gospel often with our own kids, especially in discipline cases, um, my kids are sinners. And even though our rules in our house aren't necessarily God's law, at the end of the day, God's law does say that they have to honor us. right? And if they disobey us, to disobey us is to disobey God. And so we want to bring that to bear. Because what the law of God is ultimately showing my kids in that moment is that you don't have the ability to obey God. Right? And so what I don't want to do is have the kind of household or to, or, to, or to walk with my kids to think that somehow, because of some level of innocence, they have the ability to obey. They don't. They're dead in their sins, just like everybody else. The sin reveals that. It shows them their need for a Savior, and you get to give them the Savior. And so I'd say the other side is, is that you want to model. So with my kids, for instance, I want to model not only righteousness, but repentance. So there are a lot of times where I go in where I've snapped at my kids and I've had to sit down with them and say, listen, I'm really sorry that I snapped at you that way. And I need you to know that it is not your fault that I responded. That was in daddy's heart. That was daddy's sin. That daddy sinned against God. Okay? Which is why daddy needs Jesus too. And we have those conversations often. You know? And so I just want to model repentance as well as I can. I want to use the law. Listen, my kid, my kids understand right and wrong. They understand when they've broken the law, you know. Um, and that if you've broken one, according to James, you you violated everything, you know. So I, I think that's the natural entry point for kids. Now, do you need to dumb the language down in such a way? I wouldn't say dumb it down. I would say you need to be able to use language in such a way that be understandable, but. You know, part of the reason we have everybody in my church volunteer in the children's ministry is because if you can't communicate the gospel effectively to a five-year-old, you may not yet understand the gospel. 
way. And so we view it as a primary way not just to evangelize our children, but also to equip the saints to share the gospel. Because if you can boil it down to just this this little nugget that makes it in in five or six-year-old language, now you begin to really understand the gospel. Okay? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Any other follow-up questions about kiddos? Okay. Good question. Fourth, how exactly is Catholicism different from Christianity? I'd love to be able to talk someone through the differences, especially my nominal Catholic friend that says it's pretty much the same thing. Um, As you guys know, it's not the same thing. Um, There's really three big disconnects between Protestants and Catholics. Number one, it's gospel math. We believe that Jesus plus nothing um, is eternal life, that he is sufficient. Catholics believe that it's Jesus plus sacraments and works, and, uh, and so we just have a different set of mathematics, okay? And so that's a, that's a disconnect. Secondly, uh, so everything has to do with sufficiency of Christ. How sufficient was Christ's atonement? Secondly, language and meaning. We don't mean the same things when we say sin, grace, forgiveness, or works. And when a Protestant says sin, we say it is um, it's a spiritual condition that we are, uh, it's the nature that is in us that, that, that opposes God. Um, it's who we are, Right? For a Catholic, it's not who we are. It's not a spiritual condition. It's just your evil actions. It's things that you do. Okay? So man's kind of innately good for the most part, but sin is mostly defined by the bad things that you do. Protestantism understands sin as, just like Matt said last night, uh, it's not just the bad things that you do, but even all the good things that you do with bad motives. Everything's been corrupted by sin. So we have a massive misunderstanding, disconnect on sin. We also mean something different by grace. When we say grace, we say God's unmerited favor towards sinners. It's his disposition toward us. When a Catholic uses grace, he's not talking about a disposition. He's talking more like a thing. It's something that you receive, right? That through the sacraments or through obedience, um, you're able to receive merit that's been accrued for you by other people, saints, and specifically Jesus. And through the accruing of that merit, you have a better and better chance of seeing eternal life. So we mean something different by grace. We also mean something different with forgiveness. We mean the complete personal pardon for sin achieved by Christ's atonement. It is completely done. It is finished. It is sufficient. A Roman Catholic holds its forgiveness to be incomplete personal pardon. That it is uh, that plus good works to satisfy or to make atonement. Lastly, by works, uh, we mean Christian service by the Spirit's work. It's something that we do by the power of the Spirit as a response to the gospel, uh, whereas the Catholic sees it as contributions toward making satisfaction. Okay, So if you want to define vocabulary, just like anything else, if you say to a Catholic, hey, I'm saved by grace, and, you know, saved by grace through Christ, you would go, hey, I am too! But you mean something totally different than you do. Okay, The alone aspect is huge whenever you're speaking the gospel. Because when he says, hey, I'm saved by grace through Christ too, what he's saying is that Christ has afforded me grace that I can access through the sacraments, and that through those sacraments, I can now get grace, and that grace helps me to live a more obedient life. And by living a more and more obedient life, I can one day, hopefully, maybe, if I cross my fingers, stand justified before God. And if I don't, like most, I'll go to purgatory until I make full atonement, and then I get to enter eternal life. Well, that's way different. So if you just go, hey, I'm saved by grace in Christ, they would go, hey, me too. Right? So you want to be really clear on your definitions. Um, but 
Just some practical advice. Number one, don't stir them up. Avoid peripheral issues. You don't have to go in on Mary, right? You don't have to go in on a lot of those things. Are those legitimate conversations? Yeah, they are, but they're like tenth, right? Not first. Okay, really where you want to camp is the sufficiency of Christ. That's where you want to go. Okay, find common ground. Catholics generally believe in the divine authority of the Bible. They mean it a little bit differently than we do because they think it's equal with the authority of the church. But they still believe the Bible is true. They believe Jesus is the Son of God, generally speaking. Um, so do the demons, right? Just because you believe the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of God, doesn't mean you're saved. Um, but find common ground. Secondly, do stir them up. And I would say do it by asking questions. As with anybody else, whether it's a Catholic friend or a Muslim friend or a Buddhist friend or an atheist friend, ask lots and lots and lots and lots of questions. Just because you read a book or a couple articles on Catholicism or came to an evangelism training at the BSM doesn't mean you're all of a sudden an expert on Catholicism. Okay? Ask lots and lots of questions. You might ask questions like this. Just kind of easy entry points. How's your relationship with God going? Because the way they understand the relationship with God is totally different than the way the Protestant understands the relationship with God. How's your relationship with God going? I don't really know. I don't really know. I have a relationship with God. We can talk about that. You might also ask, does God feel like a stranger or a friend to you? For most Catholics, because they have no concept of a personal relationship through Christ, uh, God often feels very distant. Something that you can only access through these sacraments you don't really understand that are mystical. You might also ask if you were to imagine, if you were to imagine what God's face looks like when He considers your life, what does His face look like? Most Catholics, if they're answering honestly, would say that He's probably frowning. Those are easy entry points for the gospel. What if I told you there was a way that God's face could always be smiling? Would you believe me? If God asked why he should allow you into heaven, how would you answer? Listen, that sounds like an old hokey question from like 1970s evangelism explosion. That was the question that opened my wife to the gospel. She grew up in a Roman Catholic church. She didn't really know what she believed. She could treat, you know, you know, she went through all the motions, went to mass every week, she had all the moving parts and everything else. Um, she didn't know. What she did know is she couldn't know. And when somebody began to ask that question, she goes, well, you can't know that. In fact, she had been told it was sin to even presume that you could know. And that was what first got her asking questions. If God were to, if God were to ask you, she goes, I don't know what I would say. What if I told you there was a way that you could know exactly what he would say? Catholics are going to go, wow, that sounds really presumptuous. And that's it. I don't know if I want to go there. So don't dismiss it just because it's an old, kind of crusty you know, evangelism tool that your parents used back in the day. Right? Um, that was just a grace that God used in my wife's own life. Of course, I'm probably as old as your parents. Um, is it presumptuous to be sure of having eternal life? Um, good questions to ask, just as entry points that can get you to the gospel. But we can also learn from them where they're at. The worst thing that you can do with anybody is just presume, uh, is to presume on them. Last question. How do you respond when people ask questions that don't really affect the main meaning of the gospel? Example, what about dinosaurs, science, etc.? Um, I don't really care. <laughs> to be really honest with you, 
Um, I'm willing to have those conversations about dinosaurs and anything else. I would say, in the conversations I have about dinosaurs, I'd say, listen, if you're willing to take by faith that what you see when you walk into the Perot Museum is that this massive eight-foot story, terrible lizard that has been constructed, that we know his running speed, that we know his dietary habits, that we know his mating habits, that we know all of this, because we have 20% of a supposed skeleton that's been reconstructed and reimagined of this. That if you're willing to take that by faith, I'm going to argue that there's every bit as much, if not more, evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That if you can believe in dinosaurs, you can believe in Jesus. And I believe that's true. I believe there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than I think there is for dinosaurs as we envision them. Not because I don't believe dinosaurs existed. Okay. Um, but so much of it is just taken by faith. So when I walk into the Pro Museum and I see Triceratops and I see all of it, I'm like, what a lovely, you know, what a lovely museum of dragons. Look at this lovely cave of imagination. Right? Because you, there's no way you could possibly know. And yet at the same time, we have eyewitness accounts of Jesus. Nobody's ever seen a dinosaur. But people saw Jesus, even after he died. That's crazy. And if you're willing to believe this person, that this dinosaur looked like that, ate like that, walked like that, bred like that, did all those things, even though they've never seen him, how could you not believe that Jesus rose from the dead, even though people saw him and were all willing to die for that? I don't know any paleontologist that's willing to die for their triceratops. (laughs) So I think that's... That's one thing. Secondly, avoid the temptation to make the Bible into something that it isn't. Is, is Job, when he talks about the Leviathan, talking about dinosaurs and armor? I don't know. Maybe? Probably not. Right? So what we don't want to do is start with the presuppositions of secular naturalism and try to work it back as if the Bible existed as an apologetic against it. Right? Moses did not write Genesis right, to refute all those pesky evolutionists. Right? Moses wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit Genesis so that Israel, when they were redeemed out of captivity, that he might not just save them out of Israel, but that he might get Israel out of them. That this is who God is. Right? That he is the creator of all things. He's the one true God of, in heaven, on earth, and below the earth. He created us. We're all accountable to him, and he wins. Right? That's the purpose of Genesis. Genesis is about God. It's not about creation. Creation is just an incident used to declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. But at the end of the day, if you're reading Genesis 1 and you're finding, you know, you're finding electromagnetic fields and all these kind of things, you're not reading Genesis correctly. And I think if you begin to press those things into the Bible in a way to try to grant credibility to the surrounding culture, you're going to lose the Bible. Okay? What we mean when the Bible is sufficient is not that the Bible tells us everything that we know about everything you could possibly know. What we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient is that God has given us everything that we need to know to do everything that he would have us do. Both to be saved and to do good to others for his glory until Christ returns. It's to reveal himself, ultimately the person of his son, for his glory. So the Bible doesn't have anything to do with dinosaurs or anything like that. Are there bridges to the gospel from any of those? Yeah, sure, I think so. Um, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Anything you want to add? You get into those conversations uh, all the time. Yeah. This one's kind of funny, but I've, I've had it said to me 
And, and somebody asked, well, what if those people, those eyewitnesses, were hallucinating? Yeah. Is it possible that all 12 had the same hallucination? That all of them were sharing the same kind of distressed psychological state, that over time, that psychological state lasted in such a way that they would still be so convinced of their hallucination that every single one of them would die for the testimony that they saw Jesus. You're telling me that not one of them might come to some degree to his right mind and go, listen, we know where the body is, okay? Listen, don't kill me. Or the other 500. Or the other 500 or so. Yeah. So, I mean, I just go, the perfect chance for Peter to have come clean since listen, I was smoking something that was a little weird. I think I saw him, but maybe I didn't. was when he was being hung upside down on a cross in Rome. Right? His tradition holds. He was unwilling to do that. Was, his crucifixion wasn't even worthy of the same kind of crucifixion as his Lord. Um, he knew it. Yeah, that was just more fun. Yeah. Which is so funny to me, because we would never presume on anybody like that. <laughs> that, I mean, it's a fallacy. By the way, yeah. that's a logical fallacy. Yeah, it is. To, ass, to, ass, for your conclu- to assume the conclusion mm-hmm. from the beginning, mm-hmm. and then try to and then try to state that the reason that it's false is because it's some kind of hidden motive or psychological thing that I can't know. That's a logical fallacy. It would get dismissed in a heartbeat. Any philosophical class. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? Yeah. I've encountered a few, and then I've talked to a few people who have encountered um, people. Not even with a deistic viewpoint, but like polytheism, like believes in gods and goddesses. Yeah. What would you do with that? Joe? Um, well, Christianity believes that there is one God, and he has revealed himself. And he said, and he said, has said, he himself asked the, the question, is there a God besides me? I know not any. Um, so either he is right, or there are a whole bunch of gods out there. So you're saying that Mormons are wrong? Yes. Okay. Well, I'm saying God is saying Mormons are wrong. God is saying Mormons are wrong. That's right. Now, I would say, listen, if you're a God, when you die and you come out of the ground, I believe you. But if you stay in the ground, then you're a fool. Or any other person that is claiming to be God. Show me Buddha's body. We know where Muhammad's laid. It's just a prophet, wasn't a god. But anyways, any other questions? I had one. I had one thing to add. Yeah, yeah. Uh, isn't it also that in like, I think it's in First John and probably other places in the Bible where it says test the spirits, um, because that's not to say that. I, I like it's, it is very true that God is the only God, but there are other spirits out there that aren't of God, and so who's to say that these other spirits won't claim that they are God? Oh. So, what would you say would be the means by which we test those spirits? Winding them up against Scripture. Amen. Mm-hmm. And well, if they are, if what they say is biblical or not, and if, if how they do you are, know, how do you know that Scripture's right? Well, because. Uh, God gave it to us, and He revealed Himself to us through the prophets. And uh, now, wait a minute! But isn't that just circular reasoning mm-hmm. to appeal to its own source? 
I, say, I think the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. Plus yes and no. Uh, yes, because if there is a God and he reveals himself to us and he says that something is true, then I would believe that it is true because he is God. Um, especially if he's the God that he says that he is, perfect and, and true. Um, no, because there is there's much reason to believe, aside from just the Bible, that God is true and that God is real. Um, you could go into, if you wanted to say, look at science. Science will tell you that the Big Bang Theory is how we all got here. How did the Big Bang Theory happen? They, that's still a theory. Um, evolution is still a theory. Yeah, our consciousness, how, what, what gives us the ability to be creative aside from, let's say, fish? What gives us the ability to make compositions of music that's what we call beautiful um, that whales can't do? Um, why would we call certain things beautiful if we don't have something to compare them to that is ultimately beautiful? Why would we call things true if we don't have something true to compare this truth to? Um, and so if, like, not to, I guess, jab at the Mormon faith, but whenever someone comes and says, here's a, a new revelation from God that directly conflicts with the current revelation that we have, that we know to be true, because it has been handed down um, and decided upon uh, unanimously within the church of body of believers who we would say, uh, rely on the truth. If that doesn't line up, then then why would why would that be true? It's you, and, you and Joe would have a wonderful conversation about Mormonism afterwards. He wants to move to Utah just to do evangelism for Mormons. <laughs> you guys would get along great. <laughs> just to conclude, one of the biggest objections that I face, there's two main objections that, that, I, that I face most of the time when I'm sharing the gospel with non-Christians or skeptics. Number one is the resurrection. Right? And I've never had a skeptic go to the resurrection mm. until I take them there. But the place where a skeptic will go is the Bible. And that what they'll always say is, if you want to say that the Bible is self-authenticating in its authority, then they'll say, well, that's circular reasoning. And then Joe would respond, well, that's a circle that took over 1,500 years to complete. Yeah. And any appeal to authority is by nature circular. Yes. Right? And so if you want to say, you know, he wants to treat scientific naturalism as authoritative. Well, how do you know scientific naturalism is authoritative? Because science has proved it. Well, that's circular reasoning. Every single appeal to any kind of authority is by nature circular. Right? Because you're appealing to that authority to prove that it is what it says it is. Um, which is just an asinine argument for anybody to make against Bible. Of course it's circular reasoning. Let's just talk about whether or not what we think is authoritative, which one is more legitimate. Okay? So now that we're passing the whole circular reasoning thing, so don't get hung up when somebody goes, that's just circular reasoning. I'm not willing to listen to it until, until we can have a conversation about it that isn't self-referential. That's crazy. Yeah. Because I'm logical. Well, why are you logical? Because logic says I am. <laughs> no. I have a really good memory. How do you know? I took memory. I remember. I remember. <laughs> uh, so then you clarify. So my circle uh, terminates on the Word of God, 
and your circle terminates on your own reasoning, mm-hmm. well, and then we have to weigh out who's, whose reasoning is going to be better. Answering conversation is really fun. Were were you right about everything you've ever said? Okay. Um. By the way, if any of y'all have class, I think it's like one fifteen. So I feel like the obligation to say what are we here till? It's two eighteen right now. Two eighteen? Oh, so it's still two thirty? Yeah, you obviously. Oh, I thought I had you guys over. not when she's finally eliminated all of her doubts, now she can be saved. Now she can have a relationship with God. So I think about Christ in Luke 9. You have the boy that's demon-possessed and being thrown in the fire and being abused. And the man says, you know, if you can do anything, Jesus goes, if I can! You know, anything is possible for he who believes. You remember how the father responds? He says, I believe. I think that, at the most fundamental level, is, like, at its most seminal base, at its most seminal level, seminal level, is what a true, humble confession looks like for someone who is entering the kingdom of God. So I just want to make sure that she has listen. You do not have to have all these doubts worked out. Here's what you do need to know. That... Christ was God with the life of doubtlessness that you could never live. A life of doubtlessness for all those who doubt. That he died a death that was deserving of all those who have sinned against God by doubting God, so that those who doubt God might be assured that they will one day be treated and accepted in full as if they've never doubted. And that's all of grace. And that by being united to Christ by faith, not only has the penalty for your unbelief been paid, but the very power of it has been broken. That in Christ, you begin to see your doubts begin to fade. Though never completely in this life. Not until he comes back and the presence of sin is destroyed. Once and for all. And then you're going to see fully what you only see in a glass dimly now. And it's going to be glorious. So I just want to make sure that your friend knows that she doesn't have to get herself intellectually together before she comes to Christ. She'll never come. Jesus loves humble, honest doubters. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Does that answer your question? Yeah. And it actually is for a friend. It's not someone like, <laughs> like, I have a friend. friend has this question that actually. You know what? That's the same gospel that, that I need said to me sometimes. There's times where I just go, I just I have a hard time believing that God's word really does what God's word says God's word does. And I need to be reminded, right? That Christ is sufficient. Ah, oh, that's good news. Is it not? That's great news. I believe. Help my unbelief. Humble yourself like a little child. You'll never enter the kingdom. This is how you enter the kingdom. Let the children come to me. How do you come? Like a little kid that doesn't know his head from a hole in the wall. <laughs> or whose head put the hole in the wall. You're like my kids. Good question. And then I might just ask her, well, what are your doubts? And I think that, you know, you can go in on all those kind of things, but at the end of the day, where I want to camp, is the sufficiency of Christ and the reality of the resurrection. Anything to add, John? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we search the scriptures in vain because you think in them you have life, but uh, the, the scriptures will point to him. Yeah, amen. And so let's, that, that's ultimately what we have to get our, get, get our eyes on and get, and if we're really, truly loving our friends, um, they, you need to know Jesus. from the obligation of saving anybody, that you will do all of the heavy lifting, and you will do it all for your glory, that none of us will ever be able to boast in our own salvation or in the salvation of others. All we'll be able to do is boast of Christ and Him crucified. So we thank you for that, for the freeness that comes from that, for the, the boldness that accompanies that, for the joy that accompanies that, that we do not save ourselves, but that we have been born of imperishable seed, and it will never fade away. We pray that you would give each one of these men and women wisdom, not only in their own relationships, but perhaps even to examine themselves to see whether they are in the faith, according to your word. Pray for the ministry to be a sin, make them faithful to continue reaching out, making disciples here on campus, leading young people into the church where they can be discipled and preaching the word through the right administration of the sacraments for their good and for your glory. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.